Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Uh, Wade and I are continuing our COVID-19 online learning experience for our students at Wisconsin Lutheran College for the rest of the 2020 spring semester. For my students in Theology 105, the introduction to scripture, we have made our way to Hebrews. But this class period is not just going to be uh, an overview of Hebrews. It's going to be actually quite light on Hebrews. You should have read it. There was notes that I wrote for you. You should be taking notes. But also we're going to talk Christology, the basics of the study of who Christ is. But let's start with the book of Hebrews. If I would have to give a, a theme or a title to the book of Hebrews, I would say Jesus is legitimate. Like Jesus is the legitimate Savior. He's legitimate because he is true man, true God. He is legitimate because his righteousness actually saves. He's legitimate because he's the high priest. What I mean by that is this. If I would say to you and my students, you've, you've heard this uh, uh, before. If I would hold up a pen to you and I would say, look at this pen, it's righteous. It never cheated on its wife never overate, never got angry, never gossiped. You would say, well, it's a pen. You're an idiot. What are you talking about? And so if I say God came down here and was perfect, you may say, well, big deal, right? Of course he's perfect. He's all knowing. He's all powerful. That's not, that's not, that doesn't do much for me, right? But then if I would say, but God became fully human and was righteous. Now that's a different story because that fully human person would have walked in my shoes, right? You may say to God, well, walk in my shoes as a, as a creature living in this broken world. Uh, then you can talk to me about being righteous. Um, but if Jesus Christ is 100% true man and was tempted in every way we are and still did not fall into sin, then his righteousness is legitimate. It's not a fake righteousness. It's not a computer never sinning. It's not a pen never sinning. It's not God even never sinning. It is legitimate because he walked the walk, right? He, he had this body that gets me in trouble. He had this world to deal with that gets me angry. Dr. Berg is emphatically pointing at himself yeah, when he says himself, those yeah. things. Just, you know, I'm talking to God with, with hand gestures here. So... We, the question then becomes, uh, how is Christ's righteousness legitimate? Well, he needs to be 100% true God. Or, and true, he needs to be 100% true man. And he also needs to be 100% true God because no man could do this, right? So his righteousness is legit because it's, out, it's divine. It's outside of us. It can be given, imputed to us, as we talked about when we uh, went through the study of Romans. But it's also legitimate because it counts, because he was true man. And so that's why I connected Christology with the book of Hebrews. Let me just play with a few concepts in the, in that you came across in Hebrews and that one of them is the idea of a high priest. So if you remember from our Old Testament uh, uh, talk, that the high priest would be the only one who would go in the most holy place, that specific special room where the Ark of the Covenant was housed in the temple. And before that, the tabernacle. So this is where the presence of God was. It was it was kind of like God was sitting on this as a throne. This is where you went into the presence of God. Yes, God is everywhere, but he says, this is where I'm going to be with my people. And this is holy ground. And so only the priest, only the high priest would go on and only on the day of atonement. So for a believer in the Old Testament, there were certain barriers 
until you could get to God. Um, you know, in the in the temple structure, you had your Gentile courtyard. So if you're Gentile, you're you're way out there. If you're a woman or a child, you're you're even you, you have a certain courtyard. If you're a male, uh, then you're in this level. If you're a priest, you're on this level. If you're the priest on the day, you get to go into the holy place. If you're the high priest, then you get to. So there's all these different levels, these barriers between God and us. And and this makes perfect sense that there would be a barrier between God and us. Um, I will say often in my classes that uh, I'll ask the question, can sinners go to heaven? They all say, yeah. And I say, no, actually not. Sinners can't go into heaven because they wouldn't be heaven anymore. It'd be Milwaukee all over again. So there needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a, a, a an imputed righteousness. There needs to be a salvation from sin before you're going to go into heaven. You can't go to God with your crap. And so in the Old Testament situation, it was the priest offered a sacrifice and then you could be cleansed and you could go to God. But it was through the high priest, so to speak. Well, when Jesus comes and he's the high priest, then it is like God coming to us. So when he dies on the cross, the, the payment's made, the sacrifice is made once for all. Doesn't You don't have to repeat the sacrifices anymore because those were a picture of the real deal. And now that the real deal is here, the temple curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place miraculously ripped in two, giving us access to God through Christ. So he becomes our high priest. We go through him to get to God. But actually, it's a different way. He comes to us in the incarnation, in the preaching, and in holy communion and baptism and absolution. And because our high priest is also true God, there is no degree of separation between us and God because the high priest is God himself. Now, uh, to play with that just a little bit, a little bit more, the, the writer to the Hebrews speaks about Jesus being the high priest, not in the order of the Levitical priesthood, but in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was an Old Testament character. He was a priest of God who was not Hebrew. Um, and, and he had served Abraham. And so, first of all, that there is other believers outside of the Jewish nation uh, should be obvious to us, but sometimes isn't. Um, and Jesus, who was not of the tribe of Levi, that was the, the Levites were the ones who were the, the temple workers, the, the, the priests, but he was from the tribe of Judah. But he is in the spiritual priesthood of Melchizedek. And if we remember Abraham, right, he is the one who is said was righteous by faith. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was as if he was righteous. That this this gospel message, which would have been for everybody, of course, but this specific message that Abraham was given, that he worked with the priest Melchizedek, that Jesus is in that line, that uh, priesthood line and not the Levitical one, I think is significant, right? That it's not about sacrifices being made over and over again that the Levitical priesthood did, which was only for a specific time until Jesus came. But this is a priesthood that lasts all time, right? That it is a righteousness by faith, not following these sacrificial laws. So there's all these weird things about Jesus being the high priest and the, the the, the Melchi line of Melchizedek versus the line of the Levitical priesthood. And I think that's the simplest way to kind of explain that. Um, chapter four is one of my favorite chapters, the Sabbath rest. We talked about this already. 
uh, when we talked about the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. This is where that, that Hebrew, uh, uh, the, in the writer, the writer to the Hebrews mentions like the eternal Sabbath rest, right? So the elusive eighth day. The problem with our seven-day week is that there's always a stinking Monday. Um, we get our rest. We get uh, the time to think about what God has done for us to enjoy this world. Go to church, listen to preaching, read your Bible for the comfort and peace and freedom that comes from that. And for crying out loud, stop working and enjoy this gift that God has given you. That is kind of the concept of the of the Sabbath. The problem is, is we always got a stinking Monday. But in heaven, after our six days of labor here and we have our rest, it goes on. So we have this elusive eighth day, which is a picture of heaven. Um, there's a lot more to Hebrews. Hebrews, I think, is an underrated book. I, I love uh, the book of Hebrews, but we got to keep moving. And I'd like to talk about Christology for a second. Unless you had anything from Hebrews that you wanted to mention? No, I think you hit on it well. So when we get to Christology, remember uh, the Greek word logos, uh, order. Uh, John, in his gospel, calls Jesus the logos, translated as word for us. Think logic, think all the ologies. If I'm going to study life, I study bio, biology, the, the, the order of life kind of thing. And so when we get to Christology, we're talking about the study of Christ. Now, first of all, we have to understand, just a reminder, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. That would have been something like Bar Joseph or something like that, son of Joseph. But Christ is a title, and it's also an office. So when we think about the office of the president of the United States, we're not just thinking about the Oval Office. We're thinking about the position that he holds. It's an, it's an office. And so Jesus fulfills the Old Testament office of Messiah, Messiah in Greek is Christ. Think anointed one, a christening or something like that. So when we think about Christ, we're thinking about this title, this office that's fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. And when we think about Christology, we think about who is Christ, what can he do, what can he not do? We usually start with the two natures of Christ. And so what we mean by that is he has a human nature and he has a divine nature. And once again, we got biblical math. He's 100% true God. 100% true man, and the math doesn't work out, and we're okay with that because this is a mystery, right? And by the way, we've already kind of explained why this mystery is for us, for our redemption. It's a good thing that he's mysterious in this way because it works out for our salvation. So the two natures of Christ, uh, true man and true God. He needs to be legitimately human so that his righteousness is legitimate as we already mentioned, but he also needs to be legitimately divine because only this alien righteousness could, first of all, be accomplished by people in a sinful world, but also that it, it can be given to us kind of thing, right? So when we talk about this, we talk about this union of two natures and we call it the hypostatic union. That is the two natures coexist, but are distinct and that is a mystery. So there's not a mixture of the human and divine in any way, and yet we don't separate Christ. So in the person of Jesus Christ, we don't, we don't make him into parts. He is one. And this can get really, really, really tricky. And uh, in other classes at your time here at WLC, they're going to dig in a little bit more into that. But uh, Wade, I'll kick it to you, and maybe you can um, talk about just how, how the, in the history of the church we've messed this up. 
this question of who Jesus Christ is and what are the ramifications of messing up um, the two natures of Christ. Yeah, I think um, the challenge is always to find a balance. Uh, Most uh, error in church history has come out of wanting to emphasize one over the other, and that decision of which one wants to emphasize has almost never been um, ill-intentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been usually a re- reaction to challenges of the time, um, or it's been uh, something that someone has sought because they thought it brought an internal consistency to their theology. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, and so the, the danger becomes when we emphasize one to too great an extent uh, and diminish the other, we have less than the Christ who is the Redeemer of the, of the world. That being said, when we're talking about certain things that Christ has said or done, um, there will be some that we will emphasize more than others in that moment. Uh, when Jesus hungers, he obviously does that according to his human nature, right? Um, when Jesus knows the hearts of those who are, are gathered and what they're thinking, he obviously does that according to his divine nature. But the balance is important because Jesus, uh, without being both, what he has not assumed, he cannot save. So if he's not a human being, he cannot save us. Yet were he not God, his His death in, in life could hardly um, serve as a substitute for us all. Um, I think where we see this especially uh in a helpful way as in the Lord's Supper. Right? Uh, in the Lord's Supper, we have the very body and blood of God that's given for us. Well, why does he have body and blood? Because he's a human being. And yet, how can his body and blood be on every altar in every church that's celebrating the Lord's Supper on one day? Well, because that body is God's body. It's his resurrected um, body, and, and after his exaltation, he's taken up full use of his divine powers. And so striking that balance will always be important um most of the the early church heretics who are condemned because of their christology really were trying to defend something about jesus uh it's it's just we we tend to want to uh, or we are prone to fall into one of the ditches of um, losing christ's humanity and his divinity or his divinity and his humanity when we're not careful and i don't think it that I'll, I need to get into Arianism and Nestorianism and Docetism and all that here. But uh, but to remember that the Christ who saved you is your brother in the flesh, and yet the Christ who came to save you is God himself. And so one of my favorite things to do with the students uh, is to play the crucifix game, right? And you have a crucifix, and you say, uh, you point to it, and you, and you say, okay, we're going to play a game. Can God die? And most of the students will say, well, no, God cannot die, and this is absolutely true. And then I'll say, well, was Jesus God? And now they get a little nervous, um, but most of them get right. right. They say, yeah, Jesus was God. And I'll say, well, did Jesus die? And they say, well, you're pointing at a crucifix, so sure looks like it. And then I'll say, well, so can we say God died? And I think it's hymn 117 in our hymnal that they tried to clean up. Um, o sorrow, dread, God's son is dead, it has a sing. But the German there is, O grosso note, go selbst ist tot. Um, o great necessity, emergency, big thing, sad thing. Uh, God himself is dead. Well, why can we speak that? Because God was, Christ was God, right? 
That doesn't mean that Christ, according to his divinity, can die, but Christ died as, as a man who was God. The same is with Mary. God cannot be born. The, the Son of God is eternal, uh, the second person of the Trinity. Yet at the same time, God was born in that Jesus, who was born of Mary, is God. And so it became a very important debate in the church early on. Can we call Mary Theotokos, which is the, the mother of God? Well, of course we can. Um, she gave birth to Jesus, who was God. And so that balance, it can sometimes be hard to realize how do we work the language there. Um, but that language really, or the, that this teaching it, it gives itself to such beautiful expression of God's love when we balance it well and, and use the, the language that God has given us to be able to use with it. Um, that in, in falling into either, either ditch, you end up losing comfort and, and consolation, peace of conscience. Um, and really, uh, the amazing totality of what God has done for us in Christ. It can be, uh, it can be very difficult to talk about. And I, I list some of the Christological errors in the notes. It can be very difficult, uh, to, to navigate all of this because there's some, it's, it's some subtle philosophy that's going in there. And so I think you put that well away. Just, this is for us. Uh, don't mess with this. We don't, we don't, we're not talking about two Christs. We're not just talking about, uh, a Christ who is, like a hundred percent God and one percent man, like he only seems to be God or he only seems to be man or anything like that. And it, it gets played out in Holy Communion, right? If you say that Christ's body and blood cannot be there, you're going to have Christological problems. You're going to say, well, is he really true God then? You know, and so those are topics for a different time rather than 105. Um, but I think you put that well, these uh, two natures. Don't go farther than what scripture says. And by the way, the creeds, if you don't from, do less than what it yeah. says to you. Yeah. And if you um, are, are, have gone to church and heard these creeds, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, these came out of these early Christological uh, problems, right? Um, and so Arianism um, is, uh, you know, a, a doctrine um, by a guy named Arius. Uh, he, only, he only seems to be true God. He's only, he's really just essentially in a man. Um, although he wouldn't have, Arius wouldn't have put it that way. Um, modern day Arians would, would be akin almost to like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who will say, yes, Jesus is a special guy, he's the son of God, all that kind of stuff. But if you press them to say, is he 100% true God, they're, they're going to say no. And so just so the students know, historically, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and some others have been considered cults and not Christian, even though they call themselves Christian and most of the world be say, oh, they're just different kinds of Christians. And the reason for that is because there's a demarcation. Like you have to be able to say the Nicene Creed without uh, crossing your fingers and holding it behind your back, that you actually believe in the Trinity and the two natures of Christ among some other things. All right, let's switch to the office of Christ and Again, this is something that's maybe has been highlighted in theology uh, perhaps later in the history of the church rather than earlier, but I think it's still I think it's still um, appropriate to talk about the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, and, and students that should roll off your tongue. Uh, what's the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king? And so Jesus is going to act as a prophet and a priest and a king. So we should ask, what does a prophet do? Well, a prophet speaks the word. How does Jesus fulfill this? Well, he does preach, but 
he fulfills it in a unique way because he speaks the word of God and he is the word of God, right? He is the one who speaks as uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, God speaks now through his son, but he is also the message. He is the content. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, and I would argue everything in between. So Jesus fulfills the threefold office of Christ, prophet, he speaks the word, and he is the word of God. And if you remember from our uh, discussion on the baptism of our Lord, this was his commissioning as prophet when he was baptized. How is he a priest? Well, what does a priest do? A priest makes mediation, think middleman, makes mediation between God and man with a sacrifice. So he's the mediator between God and man, and he offers up a sacrifice that then allows God to be that 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 uh, means that you're good with God, right? You paid a price for your sins. And so Jesus is the true high priest, as we've already mentioned in this lesson already. Not only is he the priest who offers the sacrifice, the one who is a mediator between God and man, but he is the sacrifice, right? So in, he is total in that. And then he is a king. What does a king do? He rules. And uh, Christ rules all, and he does it by serving. So he's the ultimate king, right? He's the one that rules all things. All things were created through him, and he does it by serving. He puts his people first. So prophet, priest, and king. A prophet speaks the word. Christ speaks the word and is the word. A priest mediates between God and man with a sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice and the high priest, and he is king because he rules all. Let's switch gears now to the two states of Christ. So think two natures of Christ, human and divine, 100% both. The math doesn't work out, and we're okay with that because it certainly benefits us. The threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, and then the two states of Christ. When we use the word state, we are saying this is a state of which Christ is working or where he finds himself, or better yet, we find him. I think of, we, we say... Um... I have this state of mind. Yeah. It's like where I'm at mentally right now. Or, st yeah, a state of euphoria or state of like affairs. Standing, yeah. yeah. So when we talk about the two states, we think about humiliation and exaltation. So let's just think about those words without any kind of theological uh, uh, baggage. Humiliation is to be made low. It's a, maybe a lowering of pride. It is uh, to be humbled, right? And remember, remember, students, it's not like you set out to be humble. You are humbled. You always have to add the D to, to the end of that word. But for Christ is different. He is actually the one who can be humble. But that humiliation does happen to him in a certain respect as well. When he is crucified, it happens to him. He is humbled. It's his humiliation. If humiliation is to be made low, then exaltation is to be lifted up. It is a raising of, of pride in, in our way of thinking about it. You are exalted. You are praised. You are in a state of, of, of something that is good and of uh, um, success, that kind of thing, right? So in Christology, when we talk about humiliation, we are saying when Christ did not make full use of his divine attributes. So for instance... He doesn't have to eat, and yet when he is, as a human being, he gets hungry and he eats. So he puts aside his divine power and is, is in a state of humiliation. He has to sleep. He has to eat. He weeps. Um, think about even uh, clearer examples. 
He could have jumped down from the cross and sent legions of angels to defend himself and his disciples, but he was crucified. Um, there are plenty of times when he could have performed a miracle, but he didn't. He was whipped, he was beaten, all of those things we would put as a state of humiliation. Exaltation, then, would be when he does make full use of his powers. So humiliation is when he did not make full use of his divine powers or attributes. He dies. For example, exaltation is when Christ did make full use of his divine attributes. For an example, he rose from the dead. He calms the winds and the waves. He turns um, water into wine. He can perceive what other people are thinking, like the Pharisees about him. These are all acts when he did make full use of his power, he was exalted. Now, there's a couple ones that are kind of tricky, right? Um, we may think of Christ's descent into hell. Well, is that his humiliation? Or and that's, this one's interestingly, it's like probably the, the oddest thing to have an article in one of the Lutheran confessions on. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think that that would make it in. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it, it does, there's an article in the form of Concord on this, shows how tricky this one is. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. And, uh, and it, 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 we won't go too in-depth uh, about it, but it is actually exaltation. He's not going down to hell to suffer hell for us. As some would say, if you read the very vague passages about this in the Bible, it, it talks about triumph. In fact, one of the Greek words there is talks about like a, like a Roman uh, general coming back from war with a parade and all these exotic animals that he... Jesus goes to hell to say, booyah. Yeah, it's trash talk. This is why yeah. I, he's trash talking the devil. He says, I won. And so the descent in the hell is a tricky one. Like, uh, like if I would say, here's all the events of Christ's life, put, put a, label them humiliation or exaltation. A lot of people would get that wrong. The descent in the hell is his exaltation. The other one that's kind of tricky is the incarnation, right? He becomes man. Is that humiliation or exaltation? I think the answer is both, right? So certainly God becoming man, you know, being born a baby would certainly be, he's not making use of his full powers there. He has to grow, right? So the incarnation is certainly a part of his humiliation. And yet it's perhaps the greatest miracle of all, right? The finite, the infinite into the finite, God becoming man, uh, and to do it in great love. And so we also see it as his exaltation. So just kind of a tricky one as you're thinking about that. So as we kind of review about the ba- very basics about Christology, 100% true man, 100% true God, two natures. Do not mix. Do not say that, um, uh, that he's half God and half man. Do not say that he's a whole bunch of God and only seems to be man or a whole bunch of man and only seems to be God, or only he's got just a little bit of divinity in him. He's like a superman kind of thing. All of those mess up salvation, um, because he has to be both in order to save us. Then we have the threefold office of Christ, should roll off your tongue, prophet, priest, and king. He's the true prophet because he speaks the word of God and is the word of God. He's the true priest because he is the mediator between God and man with the sacrifice. And he is the sacrifice and he's the true king because he rules all and he does it with grace. And then we have the two states of Christ, humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation to be made low, exaltation to be exalted. Christologically, his humiliation is when he did not make full use of his powers. So he dies. Exaltation is when he did make full use of his powers. 
That would be when he rises, for example. Descent in the hell, not humiliation, exaltation, incarnation, both, as we already discussed. That was quick, but that was uh, that was a tight lesson. I, was, I thought it was good, Mike. That was pretty good. So, students, keep plugging along. Until next time, let the bird fly. <laughs>